This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Data drives everything nowadays in healthcare. If you don't have data, you can't do anything with it. You can't, you can't ask for resources. You can't look at the quality of the work. You can't look at how we should improve it. You can't look at how we should change our processes based on anything because you don't have anything to base that information on. So if we're not tracking that information, I don't think we're doing ourselves any benefit. Ethics committees are available in hospital settings to support patients, family members, and clinicians with tough choice dilemmas that arise within patient care. In the quest to improve the service they offer, members of these teams look to emerging best practices and innovative tools. Today, four innovative, helpful, and free tools, that's right, at no cost, will be reviewed by our guests, which have practical results for these teams and the people they serve. It is this quest for better service that is the common thread among our guests and you, our listeners, in this episode. Examples of these tools are available on this episode's page on our website at missiononline.net. Just click on the Ethics Lab icon on the homepage and look for the Ethics Lab episode page entitled Practical Tools Helping Ethics Committees. Our guests are located in both university settings and also healthcare delivery settings within health systems. Joining us are Laura Bishop, Associate Teaching Professor and Academic Program Manager at the Kennedy Institute for Ethics, Georgetown University, Washington, D.C. Beckett Grimmels, System Director of Ethics, Christus Health, Irvine, Texas. Catherine Wasson, Associate Professor at the Nieswanger Institute for Bioethics, Strick School of Medicine, Loyola University, Chicago. And Mark Rapencheck, Executive Director of Ethics and Mission, Hospital Sisters Health System, Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. Laura Bishop, Associate Teaching Professor and Academic Program Manager at the Kennedy Institute for Ethics at Georgetown University, will review with us an online free 10-week course called An Introduction to Bioethics. It can serve as a refresher or foundational learning opportunity to members of ethics committees. In 2016, 6,650 people registered for the course, and in 2017, 8,000 people registered for the course. Laura joins us today from the Kennedy Institute of Ethics in Washington, D.C. Laura, first, the tool you will review with us today is available where online? The tool is available through a platform called edX, which is small ed, capital X. So it's available at www.edx.org. Now, I'm assuming every new opportunity, every new tool, every new platform has a beginning story. And I'm wondering what was the story of the inspiration or maybe frustration that, that led to this tool? Well, we were part of a movement uh, among major universities to make available the knowledge that they had and the resources they had more broadly available to people of all walks of life who might be interested in bioethics. About five or six years ago, uh, the idea of massive open online courses, or MOOCs, 
began gaining some momentum. And there are several different companies and uh, computer platforms that support those courses. Georgetown decided to work with a platform called edX and wanted to be part of this, this movement of making the knowledge available at the university available uh, more broadly in the world. And so we were given an opportunity to uh, be the, one of the first MOOCs at Georgetown. Great. Our director, Maggie Little, is really the uh, inspiration behind the course. And as far as we know, it's the first online MOOC in bioethics. Now, I know, Laura, when this program was designed, you were at the heart of that design. There may have been a few late nights in the work that was done to create this. But when you designed this tool, what was the intentionality behind the design? And were there any surprises or discoveries along the way? Well, it's really designed uh, to make learning possible in several, several different modalities. It, it includes video lectures, written transcripts, questions to check your understanding, links to readings and videos, discussion boards where you can talk with other people, and additional resources or exercises that were designed to help people really expand their understanding of 10 key topics in bioethics. The surprise was, since we wanted to cover a range of topics, how difficult it is to coordinate seven different faculty members. We had to learn how to do video recording ourselves in a studio setting that we designed. And it really was a team effort. It required many, many different people. The surprise is uh, that we ended up with our own video cameras and green screen at the end of the whole thing. And the faculty that joined you for this for this project, who's with us on this uh, platform? Well, there are several seven different faculty all here at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics. They include Tom Beecham and Bob Veach, who really were instrumental at the founding of uh, the field of bioethics. Maggie Little, our director, Rebecca Kukla, Karen Storr, Madison Powers, and John Keown, all here at the Kennedy Institute. Now, this format and the course orientation, it sounds very interactive. It's a 10-week course. Am, am I correct in that? It, it's designed so that it could be done over 10 weeks, five themes, two, two units for each theme. But right now, I think I mentioned to you that it is, is in its fourth iteration, and it's now uh, designed so that people can log in at any time and work on their own time schedule over the next eight months. And you had a cohort that just began, I believe, in April, and it will run till December 15th? That's correct. So you could start at any point in time, and as long as you finish the course, if you were seeking a certificate and you finished with a certain degree of accomplishment on the quizzes, 75%, you would receive a certificate of, of uh, completion. And I just checked, uh, we started on April 15th again, and we have uh, 426 current enrollees. Uh, that's a change from 200 last week. As I said, people could sign up anytime. Right. And what, uh, what feedback have you been able to get from those who have participated? A lot of our feedback comes uh, through the discussion boards. We are really able to interact with the, with the participants there. They enjoy the different activities that we've included in the additional readings as well. The fact that you can dip in and out of the course, you can either work through it in 
in order, or you can select topics that are of interest to you and, and work on those in any order that you would like. So if I'm an ethics committee member and I'm looking for that refresher or maybe even some uh, foundational work in my education, I can log in now. I can take it uh, between now and December 15th. It could be completed as quickly in, in 10 weeks, but as long as I complete it before December 15th, I can also get a certificate uh, for, from Georgetown around this course. Is that correct? You would get a certificate from edX uh, with the Georgetown uh, course. Yes, if you take all the quizzes and you complete them at a level of 75% or better, you would receive a certificate. There's also an opportunity to apply for a, a verified certificate, which some people do if they want to share that with their employer that they did all the work themselves. But we have uh, everything from classic topics of respecting autonomy, both patient autonomy and provider autonomy, uh, through topics of disability and enhancement, uh, issues at the beginning of life, uh, collaborative reproduction and abortion, end of life, uh, sessions on death, uh, surrogate decision making, which is critical, and on voluntary euthanasia. And then we have a set of lectures on different topics uh, on global bioethics. So everything from the very classic issues that you'd see in the clinical setting to uh, explorations of the ways in which our world is becoming smaller, even in the area of bioethics. So very, very thorough, very robust education and foundation. For someone who's hearing this for the first time, the availability of this kind of tool, any advice that you might offer them as they're just hearing this for the first time? Really to not be intimidated and to realize that the course is set up so that you can take it in in small increments. Uh, each of the, the units has four to five lectures. So each week you would have a chance to hear lectures and they range from four to eight minutes long. So you could you could easily listen to a lecture and uh, do some of the, the quiz, quiz questions and activities over your lunch hour if you'd like to. Great. Well, from an online foundational educational tool, to a tool focusing on capturing the work accomplished by an ethics committee. Beckett Gremmel offers a picture of an ethics tracker that captures work accomplished for assessment and improvement of the ethics assessment service offered by an ethics team. We are joined with Beckett Gremmel's System Director of Ethics uh, in the Mission Integration Department at Christus Health. And Becky, you're going to share with us a tool that has been developed called an ethics tracker. And, I, and I'm just wondering, what is the story of inspiration that led to the tool? What was the need that you saw? Thanks, Kevin. We were looking around the system at what our ethics consults looked like. And we had a decent way to look at the ones that were entered into the patient's medical record through our EMR system. We have three different EMRs, but we had reports to look at that. But we realized that there were a lot of things that the ethics committees and the ethics consult teams were doing that were not appropriate for an EMR, yet still fit the rubric of ethics consults, especially your general advisements, your policy clarifications, even a retrospective analysis. Those are not going to go into a patient's medical record. So we didn't know what we were doing. We had no way to capture that information. And we needed some sort of tool to do that. And we wanted something that was a little more robust and have more features than simply an Excel spreadsheet. Because um, I know that's what people, I, I've used those before, that's what some people have used currently. And we, we looked at a number of different options, 
But the one we settled on is a software called REDCAP, R-E-D-C-A-P, and it's produced by Vanderbilt. Um, it was created quite a while ago. It's used by a little over 2,000 organizations around the world, mostly healthcare organizations, and it's often used for clinical trials to record the data for the, the human subjects in a clinical trial. And so the nice thing about it is that it's a URL. You don't have to install anything. You just go to the website, and, and there you go. So we could do it from any computer anywhere in our system, uh, and that was very attractive to us because, one, we're going to have we have at the moment about 130 users, and we're always increasing the numbers. And so when you started to design the tool for your purposes, the way that you would use it, why did you design it the way that you did? We were looking at what we wanted our data to do. We said, okay, if we're going to track data, what are we going to use that data for to make sure that we were tracking what we needed to, but not more than what we need to. We, we didn't want to just have a, a big data repository to where we're spending a lot of time entering consults uh, into the database without much idea of what we're going to use it for. So we really narrowed down the fields and the questions that we're asking. Uh, and that was also important because these are we have an entirely volunteer system for our ethics consultants. Other than myself, everybody else has a full-time job. And so we wanted to make it as quick and easy as possible to enter the consults. And I think once you kind of get used to the system, the only required entries take about four to five minutes to enter a consult in. And so we, we looked at, again, what was the output we're going to use? And there's a lot more data we can get, but we can get a lot of that from the EMR or other, other avenues if we needed that. From the time we got REDCap installed to doing being able to do a beta test was probably about six months. It's, I know a lot of systems, a lot of health systems have REDCap already, and you may not even be aware of it. Um, I know that I, I found my previous employer had it. I had no idea that they had it. So if you already have it installed, that's a, in use in your system. That saves you a lot of the headaches that we had to go through. Uh, but we did about three months of beta testing, and we went live uh, in early March, about six weeks ago or so. So it was there's been a lot of changes in the beta test. The nice thing about REDCap, what we found is that it's very easy to make the changes as you go through things. As a non-IT inclined person, which, which is me, I'm able to create the database and set it up myself and make changes. I actually made a change this afternoon while waiting to to, to prep for this uh, the podcast. So it took me about five minutes to to add a new a new feature to it. Can you give us a few more examples of the types of things we, you are tracking in this database? The one thing I want to be clear about, we are tracking the things that also go into the medical record. We do ask for duplicative documentation from our um, ethics consultants. Now, again, it's only taking about five minutes to do that duplication, but we do ask for that. And we had a lot of discussion internally about it, uh, but we wanted one place where we could get all this data. And so that, that's why we did that. And we also looked at actually ASBH's core competencies. Uh, and they do, in that document, they say that that's an obligation of an ethics consultant to document not just in the patient's medical record, but also in the internal tracking system of the, the ethics committee or consulting. But something that might go in there that wouldn't be what you would think is a, a, quote, traditional consult that would go in the EMR would be something like, uh, so we, had, we had a patient who came in and needed a urological service that we could not provide. And the patient was that we just didn't have that level of care at our facility, so they needed to go to a different facility 
um, to, to have that. Now that's uh, elective procedure, so we couldn't transfer them. Uh, so they were discharged and with, with a referral and, and need to follow up. After the patient was discharged, the case manager thought, you know, maybe there was more we could have done for this patient. The patient was uninsured, so there are a lot of questions about access and, and what we should have been doing for them. And so they went and asked the ethics consultant, and they had quite a bit of a conversation and some chart review going on, and the ethics consultant made some recommendations to say, if this patient comes in again, or if you have another similar situated patient, these are things that I'd recommend doing. That's that's a work that the person is doing on behalf of the ethics committee, you are changing a process, you're making recommendations to further and improve the ethical delivery of care. But that's not something you can put in the patient's EMR. Even though you have a patient you can point to in this case, that patient's gone. You can't go back and put that in the EMR. And so we didn't have a way to track that work. And if we can't track it, then we can't show its impact. We can't look at its quality. We can't do anything with it because we don't know that it happened. What has been the impact so far of implementing a tool like that and utilizing it in the way you've done? Well, we are still pretty new. Like I said, it's only been six weeks. However, I can say that there are a lot more ethics consults and work on the committee that we are now aware of that we had no way of knowing that it was being done before. Um, Just as an example, we probably had about, I don't know, I want to say 75 to 80 consults in the EMR in fiscal year 2018 so far. We've got almost that amount just in the past six weeks entered into Ethics Tracker. So you're looking at potentially four to five times the number of consults that you can say, here's what we've done something with. Now we can look at the quality of that work. Now we can look at the impact of that work. Now I can show you what the Ethics Committee actually does and how it benefits the organization in many different ways. For someone who's hearing this for the first time, What advice would you offer them, given that you've been down this road? Move to some sort of database to start tracking your systems. I think we have to start looking at what the committee is doing in a quantitative measure, because data drives everything nowadays in healthcare. If you don't have data, you can't do anything with it. You can't can't ask for resources. You can't um, look at the quality of the work. You can't look at how we should improve it. You can't look at how we should change our processes based on anything because you don't have anything to base that information on. So if we're not tracking that information, I don't think we're doing ourselves any benefit. Beckett, for those who want to get their arms around what a database like this might look like to be able to see a picture of it, what would you recommend? Where might they go? There was a great article in Healthcare Ethics USA, which is the online-only publication of the Catholic Health Association about ethics. It was in... um, 2010. It was written by Mark Rapinchek, and I think it's entitled Attempting to Establish Standards in Ethics Consultation for Catholic Healthcare. Another option, Kevin, is the screenshots that I've made for our ethics tracker in REDCap, and I believe you're going to post those on your website so that listeners can go go there to, to look at those screenshots for how we've developed on what Mark's done in the past. So, Beckett, anytime you have databases and you are logging information, questions of confidentiality and HIPAA arise. How did you respond to be able to address those kind of concerns? It's a really important question, Kevin. I think we had a lot of discussion with our compliance folks, with IT security. Um, The nice thing about the REDCap database is that because it's primarily used by healthcare organizations, it is designed to be HIPAA compliant. So it's behind our firewall. Um, It requires a separate password login. 
And then we have notifications, obviously, for users that you know this has PHI. There's PHI warnings in there about that. Um, but this is, I mean, this is a standard program designed to be HIPAA compliant and protect patients' confidentiality. So that was also one of the reasons why we ended up deciding on this program as opposed to others. Well, we've posted not only those articles, but also we will post the link to the actual REDCap site where that database can be accessed. And we move now from one online database tool, namely REDCap, to an online tool that helps us assess our ethics consultation skills. We're joined by Catherine or Katie Wasson today from Newswanger Institute of Bioethics in Chicago to review their Ethics ACES project, an online clinical ethics consultation skills assessment tool. Katie, first, uh, the tool you will review with us is available where online? There are two routes to access the tool, which as you've mentioned, all of the tools and approaches here today are free. The first one is luc.edu forward slash ethics consult. And that will take you to the Assessing Clinical Ethics Skills site. You can also easily go to bioethics.luc.edu, which is the homepage for the Neiswanger Institute. And you will see buttons and tabs for the ACES tool. And that will take you to um, a variety of ways to get more information. Great. We'll begin with that question I've used already. Katie, what was the story of inspiration or frustration that led to the development of this tool? What was the need that you saw? Yeah, we saw a need to really focus on the interpersonal skills of clinical ethics consultants. Specifically, there are core competencies set out by ASBH and the Striving for Excellence document that the Catholic Healthcare has put out, which all look to the core things we need to do when we do this kind of work in ethics consultation. But what we weren't seeing was a way to evaluate and measure and therefore train people specifically in how to undertake ethics consultation focused really on those interpersonal skills. So there weren't really any tools that we could find that used trained raters and experts to help evaluate someone when they're doing this kind of work or learning to do this work. So that was really the need that we saw. And in in the design of this particular type of format, what was the intentionality behind the design itself? How how does that work for someone logging in to use this site? Yes, and when we were conceptualizing the tool and we went through the process to develop it, we looked at the core competencies and we also, the one tool we did find was the VA ethics proficiency tool And that's a 12-page self-evaluation tool, which also draws on the core competencies. So uh, three of my colleagues and myself spent a lot of time together developing and selecting 12 items. And those items each have sub-items and behaviors that you would watch for when you're looking at someone doing an ethics consultation in a training setting. So this ACES tool is designed, they're twofold. One is to use it in simulated ethics consultations, which is one of the ways we used in our graduate program to train people. So we have um, a, a family meeting, we have an ethics consultation, we have people playing those roles, and the student or the trainee is actually practicing 
their role as an ethics consultant, and we would use the ACES tool to rate their performance and give them feedback. So that was one of the initial aims and designs of the tool. And then we thought, well, this is one really important way to do it, but not everyone is going to be able to get to a an ethics simulation or develop this kind of um, high intensity um, training process. So how else can we make it available? And we did that by posting and designing from scratch a website which houses ethics cases that I actually helped write and produce. So I had to put on some different hats in this project, which has been really interesting. And so there are currently, there are a number of ethics cases and these are simulated ethics consults. And the user will go and can watch the, the four different scenes in each of the cases and use the tool the appropriate questions to rate the performance of the ethics consultant. And so you're using, you're learning how to use the ACES tool, you're learning the content of the ACES tool, and there are instructions about how to apply each of those items. And you would rate the, cons the consultant as having done the item, not done the item, or done it incorrectly, meaning they got partway there, but they didn't fully accomplish it. And so, we thought using the website would enable a much broader range of people to access the tool, to become familiar with it, and also practice their skills at identifying what does a good consult look like? What are these skills? How are they demonstrated? Is this consultant in this case competent or not competent? And are they competent in this particular item and maybe not others? And obviously they were instructed to do and not do certain things so that you can see the variety and how things as simple as seemingly simple as introducing yourself and explaining the role, uh, your role and the purpose of an ethics consult that initially might sound simple, but it's actually quite complex to make that approachable, clear, understandable and accurate right in the beginning of a consult. So you'd see three or four different examples of that over the different cases. Our hope is that once people use the website and practice, that they will also start to look at their own work and their own skills and how they might match up with the ACES tool. So Katie from the reviews you might have received, from the comments you might have received from those who've utilized the site and this assessment tool, what's the feedback been? The feedback has been really encouraging and positive. A number, we have about 500 people who have initially registered to use the site. And um, I've heard from folks that um, I've been teaching and other people that I've run into in conferences that there really aren't very many examples of an ethics consultation to be viewed anywhere. And so that you have that level of um, appreciation. And then people have said, you know, we appreciate knowing what to aim for. So what are the skills that we need to be developing? What are the behaviors we need to be looking for when I'm looking to you know, develop my skills? And so one of the benefits that people have talked about is that set of clear standards. And also the benefit of focusing not just on the knowledge piece, which is really important in ethics and ethics consultation, but also the interpersonal skills. As we all know, anybody who does this work knows you know, within a few minutes, you can establish rapport with a family who's really having facing some difficult decisions or not. And 
the way you interact with them, the way you approach questions, the way you facilitate that conversation can really help open up conversation or continue some of those difficulties. And so people have appreciated having those models. So let's say I'm a listener today. It's my first time hearing about this particular project. Any advice that you'd have for me as I begin to think about uh, logging onto this site and utilizing it? Yes, I would say definitely check out the website. There is a demonstration website as well, which will give you a taster and see whether you think that would be useful for you or your ethics committee or other people doing that work on the ground. Um, become familiar with the standards, become familiar with those behaviors and those um, key elements of an ethics consult. And also there's another way aside from the website, if you'd like to access some of the cases um, there we, my colleague Mark Kashevsky and Rosa Pincus have recently published a book called An Ethics Casebook for Hospitals, and that's published by Georgetown University Press. And all of the ACEs cases are skill builder cases in this book. And so you can actually read the text of the cases and read the different stakeholder perspectives and then have that discussion again, think through it yourself or have a discussion with your ethics committee members. And additionally, you can watch that video online. So it's very much an interactive. So I would encourage people to do both of those. So we move from a skills assessment tool to a communication tool, to a ethics dashboard. Mark Rapencheck will review with us now his picture of an ethics dashboard of what an ethics team needs to keep in mind, needs to pay attention to. For our next tool, we are joined now by Mark Rapencheck, Executive Director of Ethics and Mission at Hospital Sisters Health System in Wisconsin. Mark, you are going to introduce us to an ethics dashboard, and I'm wondering what was the story of the inspiration or frustration that led to this tool? What was the need that you saw? The backdrop to this is actually a ethics grand rounds in which one of the pulmonologists uh, that was very near and dear to the ethics committee for a long time stood up after a grand rounds was done and talking about the wonderful things that had been accomplished in a retrospective review on a case. And he says, stood up and he said, so tell me, Mark, how is it that you know you're really having an impact? And I said, well, that's what grand rounds was all about. We shared this great outcome of this particular case. And he said, okay, that's one case. How are you changing the organization? How is the ethics committee changing how it is that we care for our patients? And that really struck me. Uh, Dr. Gunther Pullman was his name. And that particular question was the impetus for thinking more rigorously about how it is that we are going to demonstrate that the work that is done by ethics committees, both in consultation and in committee, impacts the organization. So that probably brings you to the design. And as you started to think of that tool, how did you design it? What were some of the ideas that went into it? What were some that stayed and what were ideas that went away? So uh, the impetus for the design of it came from um, working closely with our quality colleagues where they were continuing to develop dashboards. It seemed to me that dashboards were a very common way of communicating complex information in a concise way that could be visually appealing 
and communicate complex ideas, messages, stories in a very concise way. It also struck me that in ethics, in examining the literature, we really didn't have such a tool. We often were communicating narratively. Uh, we were communicating um, on a case-by-case -case basis, all important and good. But we really didn't have a tool or a framework to communicate back to the organization. And it seemed like every time I saw a particular initiative really get the attention of the organization at all levels of the organization, whereas the medical group, senior leadership, nursing staff, whatever it might have been, it was when they could effectively communicate quickly and efficiently how it was that that, that initiative impacted patients' care, impacted the organization, and, and changed the way uh, care was delivered. So if someone looked at your dashboard, what would be the sections or items within sections that they would see? The first thing we did is we wanted to make sure that the tool itself was consistent with established norms uh, within the profession. So it seemed very natural uh, to go to two places. One um, was uh, the ethical and religious directives. What does it call for? Um, we saw very quickly in ERD 37 that there is a call toward high quality uh, um, work that's being done um, and that the work of the committee should be expected to achieve those expectations. So in looking at ASBH's core competencies, we saw that uh, although they had clearly articulated the areas or the uh, domains, the metrics within those domains were not fleshed out. So the first one that we looked at was ethics committee structure and function. That domain itself asked questions like how many distinct disciplines should serve on an ethics committee? What is the function of the ethics committee? Meaning, is it number of consults? Is it roles and responsibilities? Um, how many meetings are you going to have? Those things may seem obvious, but the cadence of those items and questions around how many disciplines make up an effective committee are, are not settled questions. And by no means do I suggest that our baseline or target numbers establish that new standard, but it certainly gave us a starting point to say, well, the word interdisciplinary is helpful, but it's not sufficient. Section two was ethics consultation service. And looking at what made up uh, a major component of what ethics committees do, we wanted to make sure that we were able to ensure that documentation occurred where applicable. And so how do we look at the number of times when ethics consultation warranted documentation? And in those instances, did we have the documentation that corresponded? The elements of consultation. So there's quite a bit of literature on what constitutes a quality note uh, within the patient's medical record. So distilling those elements, did we achieve the expectation of completing all eight or 10 elements, whatever it might be, in each time where consultation documentation was warranted? One of the items that we struggled with was this idea of requester satisfaction. And the reason I say we struggled is that there were times where we found that asking whether the requester was satisfied may not have been the right approach, meaning it may be that it is the requester, him or herself, who actually identified an issue where upon consultation, that was no longer the issue. Mark, when you come to the section around ethics consultation service effectiveness, what were the items that you felt it was most important to pay attention to 
on that dashboard? We uh, included a number of areas that were specific metrics. The first one we looked at was mean time patient admit to ethics consult. Literature was telling us very early on that the sooner we could be at the patient's bedside um, relative to their admission date, the more likely ethics consultation would be uh, a part of the care plan, so more of the if-then statement, as opposed to a case that's spiraled out of control, intractable differences, and we're asked to kind of come in and, and solve a very complex and difficult situation. We try to drive that as far as possible, uh, or I guess as close as possible to the patient's um, date of admission or time of admission, and uh, we chose metrics that we thought were appropriate to where we had been early in the evolution of our ethics consultation service. So we were looking at our data and realized that we were sometimes 15, 20 days post-admission. We really decided to try to start driving that below 15 and with an aspirational goal of below 10. And as we started to move that consultation closer to admission, we started to realize that what we had expected, consultation was much less about intractable differences and much more about if-then types of scenarios. Uh, helpful in a variety of different instances. We then also chose to look at length of stay on patients for whom ethics consultation is requested, comparing a, an acuity index, essentially, of different types of patients in that population. Um, this was something that we ended up steering away from. It started to look very much like some of the indicators in palliative care. And uh, in palliative care, there's a direct desire and outcome for their services toward this particular goal. In ethics, it was very clear to us that there were a number of situations where length of stay as a absolute value is not necessarily what we should be about, namely those cases where it is perfectly reasonable and consistent with good clinical practice that continued medical intervention is in fact in the patient's best interest and would be very appropriate. And so it might be that that length of stay might be different than a similar acuity indice of another patient. And uh, that's a, that's a uh, metric that we moved away from. Number of ethics consults. I know this is a tough one in the literature because it's hard to know what is the right number. Uh, so we started to look for trends there instead of absolute values. We also started to look at, uh, as we could drill down in these data, um, not just the uh, aggregate number, but also what units uh, we were on. So we felt that it was likely that an ICU, uh, a NICU, a PICU, um, emergency room should all be places where it's likely that ethical issues are arising, regardless of the type of facility or how sophisticated ethically staff or units might be. And as such, we looked for trends there. Namely, instead of the total number of consults, were we being utilized in those areas? Absent any utilization, it would be an area where we could then focus on education. One thing that we did start to focus on was major diagnostic categories. So all of the ICD codes are, uh, fit into what's called major diagnostic categories, MDC codes. And we started to look at how diversified was our ethics service among the different types of clinical categories of patients, whether it was infectious disease, particular organ systems, um, et cetera. It really helped us to start to look at how we were being utilized in different clinical areas uh, where the primary diagnosis might be uh, from a variety of different uh, consult services. Uh, the percent of ethics consultation uh, that we were looking at where we felt that we should not be called if we are not asked to make a specific recommendation. The idea, hey, can you just take a look at this case? Not asking for anything, but could you just take a look at the case? Or you know, similar requests, 
we felt that was a pretty significant misuse of the ethics committee. And uh, it didn't mean that we were eliminating curbsides or, or that, that general inquiry, but where we were specifically asked not to make a recommendation, but just review, felt to us to be a problematic uh, from a quality standpoint. So we wanted to limit those significantly uh, and continue to drive those towards zero. We then looked at two quality metrics very briefly on kind of a classic Likert scale, one to five. Um, was the service beneficial and was it timely? I realize both of those terms are subjective, uh, but we wanted to get some anchoring of what we both mean by those terms and also uh, from the requester's perspective, was it beneficial and timely? Mark, from using the tool, what has been the impact? Have you gotten what you hoped you would achieve in the utilization of this tool? Given that the two goals are really to, one, communicate more effectively among different divisions and among the leadership team, so vertically and horizontally throughout the organization, it absolutely was an incredibly effective tool. It gave us that ability to set strategic goals then for the ethics committee, targeting these particular metrics to try to achieve baseline or exceed baseline. Secondarily, it gave us a way to really start diving in more deeply like I use the example of number of ethics consults, we really started to ask the question, so should the number go up? Should it stay the same? Should it go down? <laughs> you know, there's a there's a argument on either side of, of all of those end results. As we started to ask this question and take a look at the data over a couple of years, we started to then be able to refine our metric and starting to look at, okay, maybe it's not so much total number of consults, but rather are we well utilized throughout the organization? Or maybe the converse of that, are there areas where we would expect to be involved and we have had no integration or no level of utilization within the organization? Uh, for us, those were some nice opportunities for a deeper dive that I don't think we could have done had we not started with this type of tool. And Mark, if someone was to come to you today and say they were just starting the process of using such a tool, any advice that you would give them, given your experience? Keep it simple. <laughs> I think the use of the ASBH domains was very helpful. It gave us a way to anchor why were you, we were using these four. And then I would say start with just maybe two metrics in each of the domains and utilize metrics where you know, based on the information you already have gathered from ethics committees, that it will be rather easy to capture these data because what becomes exciting is to start looking at once you start capturing these data what it the data tell you over time so maybe it's just two in each domain and maybe then for that first year it's going back after a year and taking a look at that last 12 months and how did the numbers change over the year and were we able to move beyond uh, the baseline or the target that we set for ourselves uh, based on what we know from those metrics we chose. A reference and explanation for the dashboard that Mark has described is available in the journal Healthcare Ethics USA in its fall issue of 2012, entitled Continuous Quality Improvement Initiatives in Ethics, a Proposed Communication Tool. In that article, there are four tables that split apart each of the four domains articulated in the ethics competencies published by the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. We will post a PDF of this article on our page in Ethics Lab devoted to this episode. 
Today, our guests reviewed four innovative, helpful, and free tools, which have practical results for ethics committees and the people they serve. It is this quest for better service that is the common thread among our guests and you, our listeners. Examples of the non-website-based tools are available on this episode page on our website at missiononline.net. Just click on the Ethics Lab icon on the homepage and look for the Ethics Lab episode page entitled Practical Tools Helping Ethics Committees. Appreciation to our guests for their great contributions today. Thanks, everyone. I am Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Thank <laughs> you.